Hello and welcome to Sermons by the Park, the weekly sermon podcast of Union Congregational Church in East Walpole, Massachusetts. At Union, we believe in the radical welcome of Jesus Christ and in the power of the Word of God to inspire and transform us. We're happy to share that message with you wherever you are on life's journey. Now here's this week's message. Our first scripture reading today is from Esther, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 and 15 through 18. Bear with me through these pronunciations. Now there was a Jew in the citadel of Susa, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away by King Jeconiah of Judah, whom King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had carried away. Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his cousin, for she had neither father nor mother. The girl was fair and beautiful, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in the citadel of Susa in the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the woman. The girl pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetic treatments and her portion of food, and with seven chosen maids from the king's palace, and advanced her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Esther did not reveal her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her not to tell. Every day, Mordecai would walk around in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. When the turn came for Esther, daughter of Avihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had adopted her as his own daughter, to go in to the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was admired by all who saw her. When Esther was taken into King Ahasuerus in his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibet in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the other women. Of all the virgins, she won his favor and devotion so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave her a great banquet to all his officials and ministers, Esther's banquet. He also granted a holiday to the provinces and gave gave gifts with royal liberality. May God add a blessing to the reading and hearing of this word. Will you pray with me? Let us pray. Speak to me, O God, that I may speak. Speak to our hearts gathered here that they may know you better. Encourage us by your presence through your word in this scripture here today to be about your good works, to fulfill the call you have placed upon our hearts, to play the part you have called us to play. 
pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's just, uh, it occurred to me that the, the story of Esther is not one that's often heard uh, or preached on a Sunday morning, but the name Esther is uh, echoes in this church uh, family a little bit. The previous settled pastor of the church was, of course, named Esther. Um, and then the interim minister who immediately preceded me, his daughter, who tragically passed away from cancer, her name was Esther as well. So uh, I think of them and this sort of lineage here at the church in the background of this story. But the story uh, contained in the biblical book of Esther is a story about a person, a person and a people who are navigating through difficult times when God's presence seems somewhat absent. And so I think in that, um, this story speaks to us today. The book of Esther was probably composed in the second or third century BCE, which was after Jerusalem had been conquered by the Babylonians, as was mentioned in the introduction to Esther there. The story takes place far away from Israel in the imperial capital of the Persian Empire and repeatedly refers to the fact that the Jewish people there are scattered. They are there in this minority outsider status, and that is what the story is wrestling with. Mordecai, as we just heard, had encouraged his adopted daughter when she was taken into the king's house. He encouraged her to hide her ethnic and religious identity, to hide who her people were from the king. And his caution would turn out to be quite prescient. Because indeed, Esther quickly wins the favor of King Ahasuerus. And indeed, he goes very far in lavishing gifts and, and holidays and all sorts of things upon her, even making her the queen um, over his actual legally married wife. But that's another story. Yet in the king's court, there is also an adversary named Haman, Haman who has a run-in with Mordecai. You see, Haman thought he was the biggest deal in the king's court. And he didn't much mind this new interloper. After all, she was just a woman. But then he ran into Mordecai, who was always there out in front of the palace. And Mordecai didn't show him respect. And Haman was kind of a godfathery kind of guy. And so respect was everything to him. And so he decided he wasn't just going to punish Mordecai because that would be a little petty and beneath him. Instead, he was going to make a statement. He was going to send a message to Mordecai and to all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom. Now keep in mind that Mordecai is just, just some guy. He's not a priest. He's not an elder. He's not a person of any particular importance. And yet, because of his run-in with Haman... Now the entire people, the entire Jewish people, is under threat from this powerful person. It shows the, the pettiness, I think, of the way prejudices develop. They start personal, but then they become widespread. Haman convinces King Ahasuerus to decree that all of the Jewish people be destroyed in the kingdom. He says, there are all these people scattered about your kingdom who do not worship you or follow our laws. We need to get rid of them. And the king, who's kind of uh, not the sharpest tool in the shed, goes along with it. He says, sure, whatever. 
This decree, of course, causes chaos in the land. It causes chaos among Mordecai and his fellow people. When Mordecai hears about it, he rips his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and ashes, these traditional symbols of Jewish mourning, because he knows that once the king has decreed something, it is irrevocable. And yet, Mordecai doesn't give up hope. He goes to Esther and he tells her about this plot and about the danger she is now in. But Esther has a decision to make. She could choose to continue keeping her identity secret, continue to enjoy the king's favor, to save herself from the wrath to come. Or she could out herself, tell the king that she is one of the people he has decreed to kill. She could confront the king and beg for his mercy. This too was a risk, though, both because the king obviously, is a little fickle with how his affections are directed, but also because seeking an audience with the king without advanced permission was punishable by death. In other words, for Esther to speak up on behalf of herself and her people would be to risk her life. Mordecai hears this and he says, Do not think that just because you're in the king's palace you will be able to escape any more than all the other Jews. But who knows? Perhaps you have arrived in this royal station for just such a time as this. Perhaps indeed. So Esther makes up her mind. And she turns to Mordecai and she says, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I die, I die. This is where the story gets really intense. Esther gets herself all done up in her finest robes and clothes. She does her makeup and gets all the jewelry on. She makes her way to the court, and all the king's courtiers are there milling about. Haman, her adversary, is there whispering in the king's ear. And through the crowd of sycophants standing around, the king spots Esther, uninvited, not where she belongs. And then he smiles and invites her to approach. And he says, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to half of my kingdom. So at that moment, Esther knows she's made it. She's gotten over that first hurdle. Even though it was against the law, she has been invited into this audience with the king. But she's also wise enough to know that she shouldn't press her luck. And so she says, uh, she uses her request not to get half the kingdom, but to invite the king and Haman to join her for a banquet. And the men happily agree, and they go, and they drink, and they feast late into the night, and Haman goes home at the end of this party, feeling like he has won the day. He got to party with the king and queen, after all. It's a great honor. He feels like his station is secure. But the next day, when he returns to once again drink and feast together with the king and queen, Esther Esther does not hesitate. The king asks her what she wants, the same request. Is it it half the kingdom? Whatever it is, it shall be given to you. And Esther says, if I have won your favor, O king, if it please you, let my life be given to me and the life of my people, for, for for we have been sold to be destroyed, to be killed, 
and to be annihilated. And the king says, say what now? Who is this that's trying to have you and your people and, and all that destroyed? What? what? This is the first time hearing of this. But Esther doesn't back down. She points straight at Haman and says, a foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. And now Haman, probably with the wine glass in one hand and the, and the lamb in the other hand, it's his turn to say, say what now? No doubt thinking he was sitting pretty in the king's good graces, he must have been shocked to realize that his plot had been exposed. And so the king quickly makes a short, uh, a short work of Haman. After all, he said he would grant Esther whatever she requested. And Esther and Mordecai are given all of the wealth that had been bestowed upon Haman. The disaster is averted. The order to kill all the Jews in the kingdom is rescinded. And the day of their destruction becomes a day of feasting and merrymaking for all of the Jews in Persia. Indeed, the people's mourning is turned to dancing. And this story was written to, to tell the origins of a festival uh, in the Jewish tradition called Purim, which takes place right around the same time as Mardi Gras. It's a, it's a raucous festival with merrymaking, and they, they always play, uh, put on plays of this story, or at least read the Esther story, again, to hear how it is that they were delivered, how the people's mourning was turned to dancing. It is not the most holy and sacred and sanctified of holidays, much in the same way that Mardi Gras is not the most holy and sacred and sanctified of of holidays. In fact, the book of Esther makes no mention whatsoever of God by name. God is not mentioned at all. Yet it is clear that God's providence is evident in the unfolding of these events. Because in the end, we see in this story Esther, whom God has made to be as she is, whom God has placed perhaps, in this royal station for just such a time as this. To the rather vapid and vainglorious king, Esther is just some shiny object. She's a precious vase or a statue, something he can lavish gifts upon. She's a means to his own ends, his own sense of self-promotion and self-importance. She's an object on a pedestal. But of course, when one treats people as mere objects, it, it does make them fragile. That's why we objectify people. It's a lot easier to love a superficial version of a person than to wrestle with what it means to share your life with someone who is just as complicated as you are. It's also a lot easier to hate other people when we objectify them, when we think about them as those people instead of as persons just like us. But scripture here shows us that Esther is neither a precious vase nor a fragile statue. Esther is a person with a family and a people. She has her loves, she has her fears, she has her principles and her values. She has been elevated to this lofty place. Her name in Persian means star. But from that lofty place, she can see just how dangerous the king and these powerful men around her can be. She's presented with the opportunity to simply embrace 
the king's objectification, to embrace the role that he would have her play. But instead, Esther chooses to use the power that her station gives her. Given the choice between risking her own life and fulfilling the obligations to her people, Esther chooses those obligations. She chooses the ties that bind, even to the point of death. And here I hear echoes of another person in scripture who was once brought up and placed upon a pedestal to confront an adversary. In the story of Jesus' temptation, the second temptation uh, of Satan, whose name literally means adversary, is to take Jesus and put him on the pinnacle of the temple. Satan puts Jesus on top of this temple and says, If you truly are the Son of God, cast yourself down, and the angels will bear you up, so that you will not even dash your foot upon the stones below. But Jesus tells the adversary, It is written that you not, shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus was very good at artfully dodging uh, the adversary. But here, Jesus recognizes the same thing that Esther recognizes, that there is danger in being put in that lofty place. It is a long way to fall. Then Satan put Jesus on a mountaintop and said, If you worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world to rule. But Christ again knows better. He says, Serve only God. For Christ recognized that his kingdom was not like the kingdoms of the world. Christ's obligations, the people to whom he was bound, were the poor and the oppressed, not the powerful. Those are the obligations that Jesus wrestled with that night he went to the garden in Gethsemane. Like Esther, he had a choice to flee and preserve his own life or to stay and embrace the role God had called him to play, to be given over to the authorities, to be taken into the halls of power, to be punished for the salvation of the world. And Christ chose to be elevated, to take his place, just as Esther had taken her place, only he was not placed upon a pedestal, but a cross. And the view from the cross the view from the cross is very similar, I think, to what Esther saw. Christ saw danger. Christ saw the pain of the world. But Christ also saw forgiveness. Christ saw the possibility of a greater love. On the cross, he spoke to one of the others who was with him. He said that if you trust in him, though, though you die, you will be with me in paradise. And it's easy in this day and age to hide values and principles away from the world. We rarely are thrust onto crosses or pedestals. Much of our life takes place in, in isolation and privacy. Our purchases, our votes, the way we spend our time, all of these ways we express what we value, we conceal them behind secret envelopes or by shopping at home or or living life through a screen instead of in person. But Esther shows, and Christ shows, 
that there is danger and there is value in being seen. In being seen, in assuming your place that God has called you to. Many of us uh, are right where we need to be in this life. We are already right where we can risk something for someone else, where we can act upon our values and principles. It does not take extraordinary circumstances, I think, to do this, and yet it does take an extraordinary faith to confront that fear and that danger with hope. And so I wonder today if there is a risk that that you all are willing to take, a risk that you'd be willing to take for the gospel. It may be the case that you have not had that moment in your life when you could voice your values as Esther voiced her values. It may not be the case that, that you ever have anything so grand as the weight of a whole people on your shoulders. But we all have people who rely upon us. We all have obligations that we have to fulfill. And, and sometimes choosing those obligations, choosing those principles, those values, comes at the risk of great sacrifice. But this story shows, and the gospel of Jesus Christ shows, that even if it is not easy, that cost is worth the risk. I know that that's not the easiest thing to hear. But I also know that the gospel of Jesus Christ makes no guarantee that life will be easy or without sacrifices. No, the guarantee that Christ makes of us, the thing that you can hang your hat on, is that when we find ourselves asking this question about what we can do to help, that when we find ourselves, as Esker does, up on a precarious pedestal, looking out at a weary world, wondering whether we can make a difference, Christ's guarantee, Christ's assurance, is that he is with us. He walks with me and he talks with me. And he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. The words of that old hymn in the garden remind us of what a joy it can be to face adversity with Christ. What a joy it is to know Christ, especially in difficult times. For who knows? Who knows? Perhaps God has called each and every one of us and placed us here for just such a time as this. Amen. Thank you for listening. To find out more about Union Congregational Church and our life together, you can visit our website, churchbythepark.org, or find us on social media, at churchbythepark. Until next time, may God's grace and peace be with you.